Welcome to Into the Sky, a podcast about the iconic Avro Vulcan XH558. I'm Martin Price and this is Season 2, where you'll hear from people close to XH558. From pilots who have flown her, to the volunteers who look after her, and the team who are in charge of securing her future. Join us as we explore the history of this magnificent aircraft and learn about how she will inspire the next generation of engineers through STEM education. Look into the past to improve the future. So welcome along on this next episode of Vulcan to the Sky. Today we've got a young gentleman, 90 years young, uh, Clifford Collins. Hi Clifford, how are you? Very well, thank you. Good. Having a good day today? Yes, quite. Just, just, just a quiet day, but a good day. They're the best days, though, aren't they? So, you've been involved with the Vulcan quite a bit. But do you mind telling us about the first time that you saw a Vulcan? What was that like yeah. and what impact it had on you? Well, I've always been interested in aviation. And right from early days, when I was about 10 years old, we used to go to Farnborough Air Show, which is just up the road from me. And that's where I first saw the Vulcan. I didn't actually see the Vulcan on the day it done its role. Unfortunately, I wasn't there that that, that week. But um, that's where I first saw the Vulcan, so know all about it from there, really. So was that the full-scale model, or was that the, the yeah. prototype? No, that was the, the full-scale, a big white one. I bet that was a sight <laughs> to see. Yeah, but th- then I joined the Air Force in 1955, and I was sent to RAF Martlesham Heath which was an experimental unit, and we were dealing with the very, very early days of the blind landing. We were trying to get an aeroplane to land itself so they could land in fog. So I think they've got these days in all airliners, I think. And it was while I was there when this red triangle looked up and thought, that looks like a Vulcan, but it's much too small. And I couldn't understand it. And it taxied around to where we were, and it was the... Avron 707A, registration number WZ736, and, and it was the high-speed version, and it came to Marvel Heath to try and get automatic throttles fitted to it. Wow, so that was the baby Vulcan then? That was the baby Vulcan, the red one, the high-speed version, yes. Oh, was there going to be two versions then? Were they looking at the bomber and then maybe a, a smaller, faster version? I think they built four third-scale models to do lots of different testing on. There was a slow-speed model, there was a high-speed model, and I don't know what the other ones were. The one that came to us, the high-speed one, had the had the air um, the engine air inlet in exactly the same place where they are on the Vulcan now. But two of them had a like a, an opening over the top of the cockpit. Wow, so that must have been like looking at something from uh, yeah. the future or out of space then, was it? Yeah, that's right. It was, I think I was the only one that had seen a Vulcan there because, you know, it was early days in them days. Um, I think I was the only one in our angle on the airfield that had actually seen a Vulcan at all, but to see the first one. And then because we were working on it, it, it was with us for two months. I worked on it for two months. To get in, it was like, like a single-seater thing with a, a cockpit just, just had a hinge on the right-hand side and you're opened up and you, you can't in. I've done that many times. I bet that was a bit of a tight squeeze, wasn't it? It was tight, but 
it was built originally without an ejector seat and Rolly Fork used to fly it. But then they decided they'd better put an ejector seat in it, which made it even tighter. <laughs> tight enough in the big one, never mind in the small one. <laughs> <laughs> so you in um you joined the RAF, like you said, nineteen fifty five, but in nineteen fifty seven you were actually stationed to Christmas Island in the Pacific Ocean. So what was that like? That was um, eventful. <laughs> we flew out from Heathrow. Well, what is Heathrow now? It was called London Airport when we went, and it was just tents. There was no buildings there at all. And um, we flew out in a constellation, four-engine big constellation to New York, and we spent two or three days in New York, then we flew to San Francisco and then on to Hawaii and then on to Christmas Island. And we were all in tents. While I was there, the year we were there, I actually saw two hydrogen bombs and three atom bombs, which was quite an event. So you saw the test experiments where they actually exploded them in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, is that what you're saying? Yeah, they were exploded 35 miles from where we were, but at seven miles up. Wow. The first one, which is the one that caused all the problems everywhere with everybody, was um, it didn't explode at 7,000, seven miles. It came down to two miles. So that was a much, much bigger explosion than it should have been. I mean, um, we had no protection whatsoever. All we had on was a thin shirt and trousers and that was it. And it had been raining and we got a little bit damp through the rain. But we but we were told that when the bomb went off, we had to shut our eyes ten seconds before and put our hands over our eyes as well. Um, so when this went they counted down to ten, down to zero, when the bomb went off there was this brilliant white light and you could actually see the bones in your hand through through the closed eyes and your hands and you could actually see the outline of the lorries that were in front of us and then they said that would be all you'd notice but it at the same time it was like someone had put a blow lamp up your back. The heat was absolutely tremendous and it dried most of our shirts almost instantly. And everybody thought, oh my God, something's gone wrong. But we didn't, and you dared open your eyes because you know if you did, you'd be blind. So eventually after 10 seconds, after 10 seconds, we, we could turn around and have a look. And there was this amazing sight in the sky. It was incredible really to see. A great big white ball, which gradually turned from white down to red, and then the mushroom cloud coming out the top of it, and it climbed up and up and up. It was although we were frightened of death, what was going on? It was an amazing sight to see. Wow! Never forget it. At the time, there was twenty thousand people on the island taking part in these things, and they just done. A big checkup on everybody because they at last, after about 65 years, they give them some medals for being there. So they know now that there's only about 5,000 people left alive that was on there at the tests. And yet the government are still saying that there was no problems. Well, I think that's another another topic for another day, is that one, mate? But wow, blimey. 
I mean, that, yeah, I, I, no wonder you'll never ever forget that. Yeah. So, so when, whilst you was on Christmas Island, and you actually got to fly in a Vulcan, didn't you? I mean, you must have been the envy of the squadron at that time. So how did that flight come about? Yeah, well, we were there one day, and this great big white Vulcan arrived. We didn't know, because we had the Valiance there, which are the planes that dropped the bomb, but this white Vulcan arrived, and we taxied down to some buildings at the end of the runway. And then they put screens all around it so you couldn't see what was going on. And then after about two hours, all the screens were taken away. And it taxied back up to our hard standing where we had our plane. We had we had Dakotas and Hastings. So we had to move some of the Dakotas out of the way so it could come and stand on the concrete hard standing. So we were there. We were all crowded around it when it stopped. We looked in on the air crew, gradually climbed out. And then the last one out, which was the pilot train down, he just looked around and he looked straight at me and he said, hello, Cliff, what, what are you doing here? Because he was a squadron leader and I was just an owner. And I said to him, gosh, Jack, I live here. <laughs> and he bloody looked at me and sort of said, you can't talk to a squadron leader like that. He was a neighbour who lived about four doors, four doors away from me. I knew he was in the Air Force, and he knew I was in the Air Force because we'd see each other in uniform. But we hadn't really spoke that much. But initially, later on, in the, while we were talking, he said, we're, we're going up tomorrow afternoon to do some, some photographs around the island. Would you like to come? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, would you like to come have a fly around with us? And I said, yes, please. He said, well, if you can get permission from your governor, We'll meet down here at two o'clock in the afternoon and we'll sort about it. So I said, right. So I immediately went and saw my station commander and spoke to him and, and he said, Good, you're lucky, aren't you? <laughs> yes, of course you can go. So I went down there and um the the pilot said to me, Well, we're all we're all here ready to go now, but we've had a bit of a setback. He said the the station commander wants to come as well. So we can't really say no to him, but we said, I can sit you in, but the only way we can sit you in is if you lay in the ball position in the dome underneath. I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> so that's what I did. I climbed into the aircraft with all the others and laid down into the ball position. He said, you won't be able to be there when we land because it's any trouble down the carriage. That's the first bit that's going to get squashed. So, but we'll sort that out later. So I, I laid there in the, the bomb position. I think I had a better view than even the pilots out the front. You could see everything. We we took off and threw around for about 45 minutes around the island. To take, like, they were taking photographs out of the windows and things. And then he called me up and, and um, come up now. We're coming into land. I had to go up and he said, you know, stand, stand on the ladder between the two ejector seats and hold on tight and you'll be okay. So that's what I did. <laughs> Most thrilling experience I've ever had, I think. So you were actually laid where the bomber is on takeoff? Yeah. yeah. And what, I mean, cracky, the, the ground must have been hurtling past you that what must have seemed like, I don't know what it must have seemed like, but was it scary? Was it exciting? What was it like? It was everything. 
Well, it was exciting because, you know, when you're on the ground, that's not too far from the ground. With a big front with it, so when you're hurting down the runway, it's, you're going really fast and it really feels fast. But as you climb up, it seems everything gets slower. But I had a beautiful view, I could see everything. So, yeah. And I've always, thought, I've always thought, well, that must be, I must be the only Vulcan volunteer that's ever flown in a Vulcan. And certainly in that position, anyway. Was it comfy? Oh, yes, yes, it was comfy enough. Yeah, there's like a big mattress there on the, on the floor. Simply, the bomb aimers position was never ever used in the Vulcan. It was in the design stage and they left it there because they, they had um, a, a radar bomber. There's one of three in the back. Yeah, yeah so the only reason I ask you that is because the times I've been up into the cockpit myself and climbed into yeah. uh, that position... Yeah. It's never been comfy for me, mate. And I've got a little bit more padding on me as well, so I thought that might have helped. But, yeah, blimey, to be there for 45 minutes. Wow. Yeah. So since 2010, then, you've been an airshow volunteer for the Vulcan. Yes. Tell us how you took up that role and what some of the highlights have been for you. Well, it all started accidentally, actually. I saw an advert in our local paper. It was put in there by Sarah Abbott, who used to run the Vulcan club. And she asked the, the local people, Guildford, if anybody come and help out at the farm record. So I jumped at it immediately and got in touch with her. And I, I turned up there and was going around and he was in a luxury gang selling T-shirts and things and met all the air crew. Over the years, we developed into a lovely little family group for what we have now. Everybody said, oh, you're lovely. Going to all the air shows, seeing all the air shows, but in actual fact, you don't see. Sometimes you see nothing of the air show at all because the stand has got the back to it, but you certainly hear it. Mm. And it's very hard work. My favourite one is the uh, the Riyadh, the Royal International Air Chapter, and that was my favourite air show, really. That, that's a four day show. We, we arrive on the Thursday and, and set the stand up. And then the air show is on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So it's long days, 14-hour days and normally, sometimes in the wind, sometimes in the rain, sometimes in the sun. It's a lovely gang of people that we meet with, really great friends. We have a good laugh. So you'd say really then that over the years you've been involved evolved with the Vulcan and besides obviously the, the air shows themselves, probably the best experience yeah. you've had is the, the camaraderie, the friendship, everything that's yeah. developed around that over the uh, the 13, 14 years as it'll be now, uh, yeah. since you've been involved yeah. in it. Is that what you say? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, the camaraderie is, is the thing I'll miss, really, more than more than the Vulcan, I'll be safe to be called. The Vulcan's still there, still about, but you can't share anymore. And to get up to Douglas to where it is, it's a it's about a five, five or six hour drive from me, so don't get up there in your time, really. Then in 2022, it was getting a little bit much. The air shows, and I was 88 then, so I was, it was the long drives, because you have to leave home really early in the morning, sometimes five, six o'clock in the morning, to, to get to some of the places where we met, so it was getting a little bit much. But it, it, was, it was okay, it was good, I enjoyed it. And I thought, well, I think it's time I'll pack it now. 
So that's what I did. I'll give up. But um, I really, really miss it. But what surprised me mostly about the air shows was when the Vulcan stopped flying, we thought that's going to be it. They're not going to be needed us at the air shows. But it's amazing, even to when I was there in 2022, the, the stands are, are full of people all the time, still buying stuff, and it's amazing. And some people still come up and ask us, what toys the Vulcan coming to go? We should have flown for seven years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a genuine love for the aircraft out there, isn't there? So whilst we're talking about the Vulcan, uh, you know, the final question from me this afternoon is, um, yeah. obviously the Vulcan's played a significant role in your life. How would you like to sum up your feelings towards this iconic aircraft? Well... It is an iconic aircraft, there's no doubt about it. At every air show we ever went to, when it was time for the Vulcan to fly, we closed the stand and we all went and watched it. Sometimes that was the only plane we saw, but we all went and watched it, isn't one of us? And um, it was the thing that used to do, it was amazing. And sometimes it used to come down and fly across and then take off at high speed upwards and set all the fire well, all, all the car alarms and the car fire would suddenly go off and make tremendous noise. It was a, a thing to watch. It was such a shame when it stopped. Very often, after the Vulcan flew, the crowd just started to disappear. They called it the Vulcan effect. Yeah. It's just unbelievable, really. Yeah. Cliff, just want to say thank you for sharing your memories with us and um, thank you for your time this afternoon and I do hope we'll see you again at some point around the Vulcan. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Into the Sky. We do hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to keep looking out for more episodes on the way. And if you'd like to find out more about the work of the Vulcan to the Sky Trust, or maybe if you'd like to make a donation to help safeguard the future of XH558, please visit the website vulcantothesky.org.